Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Good morning. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, we're going to have a rollicking time, hopefully. Uh, Shout out to those people who uh, went out and was part of the uh, big chalk up that uh, went around town last night to uh, uh, encourage people to uh, defend the rights of refugees and uh, calling people to be part of the big gathering that will be at uh, uh, Palm Sunday, the Palm Sunday rally that comes on every year to support the uh, refugees in uh, March. So keep that in your mind. It's coming up. Uh, last week we talked to the one of the people uh, from Citizens for Melbourne uh, who are pretty upset about uh, the idea of an apple building being put into the middle of uh, Federation Square. There was a follow-up meeting on Tuesday, the 13th of February. We went down there and collected some information so that you could have a clear view of what's being proposed. We're going to hear from John Tribe. Uh, John Tribe is the CEO of the of Fed Square. If you didn't know that there's a CEO of Fed Square, and uh, he lays out uh, his perspective uh, about the business plan that includes the Apple Building in the centre of. Uh, Federation Square. It means that the Yarra building, which is on the right side of the construction, the little mountain range, which is the Federation Square, is proposed to be knocked down. And a uh, a building that, uh, according to the pictures, doesn't look very uh, <laughs> blended, I'll have to say, uh, into the whole construction. And uh, apparently the picture, I thought for a moment that the picture might have been put there to uh, disturb people by the opposition to the plan, but apparently this is a picture that's floating around that Apple itself is uh, presenting as uh, the potential building for Federation Square. So it doesn't blend. Anyway, so we're going to hear from John Tribe so you can get an idea of what uh, their thinking is, and we're going to follow that up with uh, 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 the uh, president of... uh, of Citizens for Melbourne, Tanya Davridge, who gave a speech as well at uh, the um, meeting, public meeting forum that was uh, held on the 13th of February at the Edge in Federation Square. 
Uh, and uh, But before we do, before we start our program with that, let's hear about the very important subscriber drive. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. Yes, it's our subscriber drive. If you uh, are in a position to subscribe, if you're unemployed or unwaged, uh, which is more specific, unwaged, then uh, it's $35. That has not gone up because, of course, nothing in terms of payments for people who are unwaged have gone up except for prices. Uh, it's uh, seventy-five dollars for for the waged and one hundred and fifty-four uh, institutions who are supporters of three uh, CR getting out voices. You can go online, you can come into the station, you can ring us up. Uh, business hours because there won't be anybody here on the weekend to pick up that phone call, uh, except for us treadly machine people who are keeping the station going on the weekend with all our pearls of wisdom. So first off the rank for uh, this program, Solidarity Breakfast, this morning is the concept that the Andrew government is putting forward of an Apple Megastore, which is uh, proposed to be in the uh, Federation Square. There has been a certain amount of public outrage because it was uh, announced just before Christmas without any public consultation. Uh, There's lots of reasons for why the uh, big end of town think it's a great idea and uh, we'll uh, find out from John Tribe, who is the CEO of Federation Square, who had his uh, chance to put forward the uh, plan at a public meeting on February the 13th, a day before Valentine's Day. Let's hear from John Tribe. Jonathan Tribe is the CEO of Federation Square. He has had a diverse and successful career leading and managing complex, high-profile organizations to deliver a broad range of critical services in the public and private sectors. Combined with more than 30 years of executive experience, Jonathan has also been a key contributor in various roles, such as director and president of industry bodies at a state and national level, which involve policy development, representation, and advice to government. Prior to Fed Square, Jonathan led the role of chief operating officer at Victoria University. Previously, he had been CEO at Southern Metropolitan Cemeteries Trust, was a senior executive in Delaware North Companies, Inc., from, uh, from 1997, and managing director of Delaware North Companies International from 2004 to 10. These appointments followed an extensive executive career in the health sector that included executive director at the Royal Melbourne Hospital as well as executive director at the Western Hospital. Jonathan holds a Bachelor of Arts, Psychology and Economics from the University of Melbourne and a Master's of Business Administration from Monash University. Please join me in welcoming him to the stage. 
Uh, well, thank you, Andrew. Um, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. To successfully deliver our civic and cultural charter into the future, our business model needs to change. And despite the range of personal opinion and differing philosophies that we'll hear tonight, most of which I think are largely irreconcilable, I want to tell you why, to broadly explain my organisation's reimagination of the st square's strategic direction and why the Apple Global flagship store fits within it. There have been fundamental and continuing changes in our operating conditions since opening, which present us with serious but exciting challenges. Some of them you've already heard about, but let me repeat them where necessary. I want to give you some examples. The Square now operates in a highly competitive environment. Our identity as Australia's preeminent Square is under threat from Darling Harbour and the new Yagan Square in Perth, both of which are more technologically advanced. Developments of the Melbourne Quarter, plan for, plans for Queen Vic Market, the roofing of the rail lines between the MCG and Melbourne Park as an event live site, traditionally part of our core business, and Cato Square in Paran are all examples of imminent competitive threats. The relocation of the Australian Open live site to its own precinct and the rerouting of the AFL Grand Final Parade to Indinyarra Park have both impacted attendances. The development of restaurants in Flinders Lane and its surrounding alleyways have impacted Fed Square's food and beverage patronage, most of which are understood not to be meeting their respective business plans. They are certainly not meeting our rental expectations. In the past 12 months, two tenancies have closed and two more wish to exit. The imminent occupancy of St Paul's Court by Metro Rail for at least five years will have a dramatic impact financial and operational on the square. And on completion, it's unclear to us at the moment if this area will ever be usable again for activation, given the entrance and exit to the station and the need for potential evacuation, emergency evacuation zones. The demolition and permanent relocation of the Melbourne Visitors Centre will affect visitation since many of the visitors remain in the square once they're here. And this permanent relocation by the City Council was done without consultation with Fed Square to a building which we understand to be built behind the Young and Jackson's pub. Visitation to the Square has reduced in recent years from approximately 11 million a year to 10 at present. And now in our 16th year, our infrastructure needs significant maintenance, estimated to be about $50 million over the next 10 years. The funding framework of various state governments of any colour classifies the square as a public non-financial corporation and therefore, unlike other arts and cultural institutions, we're not eligible for any financial operating grants from government and our operating costs are required to be covered from our own operations. So we must strengthen our endeavours to be self-funding. As a consequence of all of this and other things besides, my organisation needs to reimagine its future direction. While some of these changes are still being considered, others have been launched within the square. For example, an integrated series of LED screens on the transport building will create a digital art gallery to display conventional programming, but also creative artwork developed by artists, by collaborations with NGV and ACME, or created by university students as their practical academic coursework. 
This will generate increased levels of advertising and sponsorship revenue. There will be a greater number of ticketed events, such as the recent Aboria or the forthcoming Disney Marvel Avengers experience, which increases activation and hence revenue to us and to our tenancies. And perhaps what is most ex exciting to me is the prospect of developing Fed Square both as a physical and a virtual square. Imagine events such as the Diwali Festival or the Chinese New Year festivities being accessible anywhere in the world, live, and in doing so, extending the concept of the Fed Square family to new dimensions. So how does an Apple global flagship store fit within this new direction and be consistent with our civic and cultural charter? And some of these you'll have seen on the screen from Tanya's presentation. This charter, and I quote, and this wasn't on the, on the screen, recognises Melbourne's preeminence as a centre for creativity and innovation. And as the objectives of the square, it mandates that it is to provide a stimulating, educational, comfortable and entertaining destination. It is to represent Melbourne as a leading city for the arts and for innovation and cult creativity in all forms of cultural expression. It communicates the city's leadership in contemporary ideas and expression, which attracts local, national and international visitors to the square. The Charter does not define restrictions on commercial activity, except to say that retail outlets will be incorporated on the basis of a relationship or theme to the major users and upon a level of cultural, uh, contribution to the cultural and civic objectives. So let, at this point, let me clearly state that this global flagship store, as you've heard, only the second to be announced outside of the US after Milan and not requiring any Victorian taxpayers' money, is vastly different to a retail store in a shopping mall, though there will be a retail functionality to it. It is an internationally inspired community and innovation hub that will enhance Melbourne's inclusiveness connections and conversations. Global flagship stores offer a variety of free programs which include art and design, photography, coding workshops, business seminars and educational programs for children, adults and teachers. And in that descriptor is the exact synergy with our civic and cultural charter. Taking place in a high-tech environment featuring digital walls and performance spaces, these programs are offered every day of every week with local artists, authors and entrepreneurs being invited to hold uh, these in-store events. A more detailed outline of a global flagship store compared to a retail store is obtained by visiting today at Apple's website and I would encourage you to Google this site. But it's the depth and breadth of their cultural and artistic programming that makes Apple a great complement to the Square's civic and cultural fabric. But the benefits of Apple's presence is potentially even greater than all of this. Apple will enhance the great public programming of the Square currently and that of its current tenants, the Koori Heritage Trust, ACME and NGV, by potentially partnering and holding regular cultural innovation and community events with them. But the opportunities and possibilities presented in Melbourne are unique. Nowhere else currently in the world can we co-locate a technology hub 
with organisations such as a gallery or ACME, ACME already starting collaborations with Apple in anticipation of their coming here. The history of the moving image is arguably inextricably linked to the development of technology and I also recall that about 12 months ago the NGV featured an exhibition by the British artist David Hockney whose recent work has been created on iPads. I know several discussions have already occurred with our cultural tenants, all of whom, all of whom have indicated exciting possibilities for future collaboration. Let me also say that from a financial viewpoint, this project will create a revenue stream to Fed Square, which is better than the business as usual scenario of the Yarra building. With a conservative estimate of an additional two million visitors, this store will make Federation Square more vibrant and more exciting. It will enhance Melbourne's reputation as a city fostering technology and cultural activity by creating a co-located synergistic relationship between Apple and the other tenancies which can only exist by a presence in the square. Having considered many other locations in Melbourne over many years, if it does not proceed in the square, I believe the store will be relocated to Sydney. A global flagship store fits hand in glove with our civic and cultural charter, which again, let me repeat, calls for innovation and creativity in all forms of cultural expression. And where this may take us into the future is only limited by our collective ability to dream and imagine. The proposed Apple Global flagship store in Federation Square is a win for the square and for the city, and I commend it all to you. Well, there you go. You're slathering at the uh, mouth yet? David Hockney uh, did his art on iPads, so therefore we should have a Apple... Uh, <laughs> Superstore or whatever they're calling it, mega store. It's it's got it's got a name. It's it's been labelled. It's a Apple mega store, and uh, I I actually thank John Tribe, who's the CEO of Fed Square, for his uh, uh, the the phrase retail functionality. <laughs> it's a shop. No, Apple is not God. It is a shop, it is a business, it's an international uh, business and it uh, probably shouldn't be considered uh, as a pseudo-government at Federation Square because that's basically what we seem to be uh, uh, talking about when Tri uh, Joel Tribe describes what uh, the answers that the Apple Megastore is going to allow for Federation Square. Um, I I played it so that you could get a clear understanding of why it's considered to be a good idea. Uh, now we're going to hear a very good presentation by the president of Citizens for uh, for Melbourne, Tanya Dab Dabridge, who gives an outline of why it is a concern to uh, put Apple Mega Store in the prime position of Federation Square. So, Tanya Davridge, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. Our second speaker in the negative uh, is uh, Tanya Davidge from Cities of, uh, Citizens of Mel for Melbourne. Tanya is the president of Citizens of Melbourne, an association of concerned citizens who have publicly expressed opposition to the state government's decision to replace Federation Square's yard building with an Apple store. Between them, the Citizens for Melbourne represent tens of thousands of of change.org petition signatories opposed to the decision and, and substantial expertise in the built environment. In addition, Tanya is an architect, artist, researcher, educator, and writer. 
She has a master's degree in advanced architectural design from Columbia University in New York and is currently undertaking a PhD research at Melbourne University, focusing on play as a strategy for public engagement with architecture in the city. Please welcome Tanya to the stage. Hang on, I'm looking down here. Okay. Um, well, I think I find myself agreeing a little bit with the previous speaker. We should definitely be working to strong design principles um, with anything that we do when we deal with uh, Fed Square. And the community should be able to feed into the process. And in relation to that, I'm here speaking not as an architect. I'm actually going to leave that to our landscape architect, Ron, this evening. I'm here speaking um, as a concerned citizen. So I find it completely curious to think that we're all even gathered here to discuss this topic. It's interesting, isn't it? There's nothing in the Melbourne planning scheme that says the Yarra building can't be demolished. And there's nothing in the planning laws that say no to an Apple store. And yet here we all are. If current planning laws allow for demolition, they allow for a new building, and they allow for Apple, then why has the government gone about this decision in the way that it has? Why was this amendment even required? The only reasons I can possibly think of are, firstly, that the state government and Apple are afraid of what we have in spades in this room, strong public interest and vocal public opinion. And secondly, that through an open, transparent and consultative process, they were worried that someone might mention the charter. Some of you might not know, but Fed Square is governed by a civic and cultural charter which lays out the foundations under which Fed Square operates. Um, it states that the underlying purpose of Federation Square, as determined by the Government of Victoria and the City of Melbourne, is to achieve specific cultural and civic objectives for Victoria. And that's their emphasis. So here we see that the three key stakeholders are identified the Government of Victoria, the City of Melbourne, and the people of Victoria. And two of these stakeholders, the people and the City of Melbourne, have been sidelined. The Charter's objectives also identify Fed Square as representing Melbourne as a leading city for the arts and for innovation and creativity in all forms of cultural expression. They see Fed Square as reflecting Melbourne's cultural diversity, communicating the city's leadership in contemporary ideas and expression, and providing a focal point for the arts and cultural festivals and activities and important civic commemorations. That's a lot of ands. Um, I would argue that the Charter is one of the primary reasons that Fed Square works so well, where other attempts to create a public square in Melbourne have failed. As I've previously written about the square, there is no other public space in Melbourne that works like Fed Square or engages the broader population in the way that Federation Square does. Fed Square takes the underlying altruistic philosophy of public institutions, such as the State Library and the NGV, but instead of focusing on providing public benefit through books and knowledge or art, it engages the public with the city itself, with its architecture, its urban space, and the multiple communities that come together to make the city what it is. Fed Square curates the public realm in the same way that the NGV delivers an exhibition. And this is in large part due to the vision that is spelled out in the Charter. The Charter very clearly defines the Victorian people as the square's key stakeholders. 
And so when I read, and I read the planning amendment documents, in the planning amendment documentation accompanying the amendment, that Federation Square PTY LTD, the company that manages Fed Square, had requested the amendment, I was outraged, and I still am. I'm going to call this what it feels like to me as a citizen. It's a breach in the duty of care by Fed Square's directors to adhere to the Charter, and it's a breach of the public trust, the compact made between us, the City of Melbourne, and the Victorian Government through the Charter. This amendment sidelines us, all of us, the people of Victoria. It negates our ability to have a say in what happens in our square. It's an attempt to silence us, and I'm here to say that we will not be silenced. In addition, the Charter talks specifically about retail tenancies. It states that retail outlets within Fed Square are required to embrace and enhance the stated cultural and civic objectives. Remember those cultural and civic objectives? Now think about Apple. What is its cultural and civic relevance to Fed Square and to the people of Victoria? I would argue that it has very little cultural and civic relevance to the people of Victoria. Apple and the government are treating us like children. We've watched the Gruen transfer. We understand that contemporary advertising practices have shifted from selling product in packages to using community engagement to sell product. Now, Apple might very well believe that its town square model is in the public interest, but I'm here to tell you that Apple in Fed Square turns Fed Square's citizens into consumers, whether they like it or not. The type of corporate retail transaction that occurs in a store like Apple, or Bunnings or JB Hi-Fi for that matter, it doesn't have to be Apple, um, has economic value, admittedly, but it doesn't have social and civic value. It's not the currency that we are trading in here. If you want to buy Apple, head across the road, but don't turn our public square into a shopping centre. The extra visitors that Apple will bring into the square won't be coming to meet friends over a drink and a bite to eat. They won't be coming to take an Indigenous cultural tour or to see some Australian art or movie at Acme or watch Aussies compete on the big screen like what's going on out there now with the Winter Olympics. They'll be coming to buy Apple products, and that's really neither cultural nor civic. Apple's not really about people, it's about products. And I think that's clearly illustrated by the slides from their website. So these are some slides of the stores. I need to be taller as well. Um, the images we present to the world tell us a lot about intentions, and there are not many people in these images. I don't see many at all. But brand and product are front and centre. And every event that, take that takes place in the square becomes a branding photo opportunity for Apple. How uncomfortable does this make you feel? It made me uncomfortable just making it, like very uncomfortable. Significant and important cultural events occur in this square, and I'm not interested in seeing them branded. And how will this decision affect events like these? Protests that happen in the square, with Apple as the building as the backdrop. These are events that give our public voice. Will these events simply no longer happen? Who negotiates that? I'm hoping that our government would exact an enormous amount of money for the free advertising that Fed Square will be providing to Apple, but we really just do not know, do we?
That part of the process is also hidden behind closed doors. I'd like to close by talking about what makes public space. What is this thing that we call public space? Because it's a very elusive concept. People have said to me, why do you care anyway? Fed Square isn't public space. It has private security guards and it's run like a private company, albeit a company that's owned by the government. Perhaps, but I'm not so fussy about my public space. Public space for me is not about a utopian ideal. Public space is negotiated on the ground. It's negotiated right here and right now. It's what we are doing in this room. We're negotiating what we think our public space should be. And Apple's not even in the room with us. Public space is cultural and contextual. It's defined at the intersection of government decisions and public and private interests. And its definition is open and malleable. This is why we must fight this decision. Apple in Fed Square would literally upset the public space apple cart. It would be a defining moment in the way we think about public space in Australia, just as Federation Square was itself a defining moment. And I think we would all be impoverished for it. The Apple plan for Fed Square ignores a key part of the de definition of public space, the public. People play a significant role in the way we define public space. We are the missing piece in this jigsaw puzzle. Every Sunday in Hong Kong, maids take to the streets on their days off, on their day off, sorry, singular. In vast numbers, they occupy the public walkways of the city and they occupy its private plazas. Through their actions, they make all of these spaces public. Without them, these spaces are simply walkways and gaps between the buildings. This is not to say that we're maids, obviously not, or that we're in Hong Kong. The point I'm trying to make here is that people define public space. And people do not want this store. I could read you messages from some of the tens of thousands of people that I represent who've signed petitions opposing this decision. We define this space, it's our city, it's our square, and we need to vote loudly and clearly against the decision. Because without us, Fed Square is simply a plaza in front of an Apple store. A new Apple flagship store in Federation Square will not be a win for the square, and it will not be a win for the city. I say we vote no. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. Yes, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we've just been listening to uh, Tanya Devich from uh, Citizens for Melbourne against the uh, Apple Megastore being built in Federation Square. There's a couple of things to uh, talk about before we move on, which is that uh, the Andrews government has just put forward, or uh, Richard Wynne has just the... Uh, Planning Minister has uh, just put forward that there's going to be a steering committee and design uh, a steering committee to establish design principles to guide guide the uh, design development of the Apple Mega Store at Federation Square. That was announced on uh, Valentine's Day, February the fourteenth. So there's uh, they, obviously they consider to they still believe that there's uh, the approval for the Apple Mega Store at Federation Square from twentieth of December two thousand. 17 remains in place, despite the fact at this public meeting there was a resounding no vote. Uh, another little thing to take into account, there's been reports coming out of Paris that uh, the Apple's, uh, Apple there has had some protesters outside the front uh, in relation to their labour relations. Uh, there's a lot of uh, talk about uh, 
the um, fairly inhuman conditions that uh, people who work in apple factories in China uh, are experiencing. So that's what those demonstrations are about. But uh, Apple is uh, trying to use the courts to outlaw those protests, which is uh, kind of interesting in this context of uh, public space protests and Apple megastores. Swimming in December Heading for the city lights In 975 We're sharing each other And nearer than father The scent of the lemon Drips from your eyes G'day, we're on Solidarity Breakfast here and we've got Lou Wheeler on the line. G'day Lou, how are you? I'm terrific, Annie. Yourself? I'm good. Now Lou, you're representing the uh, uh, fight back against uh, public housing uh, element that's part of uh, Fair Go for Pensioners uh, this morning. Uh, That's right. Yes. And uh, you want to tell us about uh, selling public assets equals less public housing. That's right, Annie. Um, Yes, Fair Go for Pensioners is one of the uh, groups, the uh, founding members of a group called, a coalition called Hands Off Public Housing. And uh, when we were alerted to the fact that the government was planning to um, sell off public um, housing land, of course, the the lands are are tenanted by the people living on the public housing estate. So basically, um, their plans are, it's called Stage 1 Public Housing 
uh, renewal program and, um, you know, that's a misleading uh, uh, title in itself because it's um, basically going to be selling off uh, the land, demolishing the um, low-rise, it's only low-rise at this stage, properties, um, demolishing those, selling the land and then um, two private well, developers... Well, actually, not selling the land, giving over the title to the land to private developers. There hasn't been any discussion about money. <laughs> well, there actually has, but it's all commercial in confidence. Oh, right. um, okay. And what, um, yes, we were on a delegation some months ago now with the uh, Minister for Housing's uh, main housing uh, advisor, um, and what we were told at the time... Uh, we should actually was mention what his name is, Martin Foley. Uh, yeah, the Minister for Housing, Martin Foley. Um, and what personal. we were told... Yeah, <laughs> what we were told by um, his advisor was that um, at this stage they thought it would be something like 60-40, that is 60% would go to private developers to redevelop it and 40 would be what they, the government calls social housing, which is under that umbrella is both public housing and community housing. And we already uh, were so, told so, that... Can, can I get this right? They're doing us, the public, a favour because they're going to give a land that was normally used for 100% public housing and now they're doing us a favour by giving 60% to private, uh, private uh, ownership people and 40%, the same land that used to have 100% public housing. That's right. Right. Well, okay. and... <laughs> oh, I, feel really, I feel really grateful. Well, well, don't you? Yes, our public assets being hand, literally handed over. Now, what they say is, I was at a public inquiry which has just ended, um, the report's due out in March, where one of the property developers who has, was involved, has been involved and still is on the Carlton redevelopment, where he said it was common wisdom that the split was 70-30. We have had other um, uh, leaks where we're told it's 80%. So who knows because we can't get the information. But the other scandalous part of this is that the so-called 20 or 30% that will go under social housing, it's not necessarily going to be public housing because most of it will go to community housing and they're, they're private providers. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of non-government organisations who are involved in providing housing. The rent is at least 5% higher. They cherry-pick a lot of um, the tenants that can, um, you know, get access to that housing. And the lease arrangements are quite different to public housing. So, you know, who knows what is going to be left of the public housing stock at the end of this process. We really do believe it's the start of the demise of public housing and as Dr Kate Shaw in one of her reports states um, and she's with the Melbourne University that it really is the government wriggling out of their responsibility to look after vulnerable Victorians and stage one is stage one this is going to go on um, you know there's going to be further stages um, further on and at the moment it's um, nine in a city estate so the land is um, absolutely top real estate value. What was also said at this uh, by this um, private developer at the um, public inquiry 
was that um, there was a model that um, if, and of course he wouldn't, he wouldn't tell us what it was because that's commercial in confidence, but that there is some scale that if they get fabulous profits, some of that will come back um, to the government. But the earlier documents said it had to be budget neutral. This is the sell-off, right? These are lands in Brunswick West, in Ascot Vale, in Paran, in Clifton Hill. Um, I mean, it goes on and on. But, it's but, it's really, not, it, but also, like, they've talked about nine estates, but you've actually pointed out that in this level of secrecy, uh, that's actually, uh, it's not nine. The number's not nine. <laughs> there's much more to it, isn't there? Well, that's right. There's, um, you know, there's uh, on one of the estates. There's actually four estates. On another, there's, um, you know, a street that runs alongside the estate. That's also included. There's two other redevelopments going on that are outside of the uh, stage. At altogether. Um, so yes, there's a lot of it going on and we don't even know how much more there is because we cannot get the information. The uh, government and that, has... that's interesting that you should say that you can't get the information. Now, this, this uh, lazy uh, out bullying arrangement of using commercial inconfidence. I went to one of the uh, public uh, forums put on by Melbourne University actually about this issue and there was one of their researchers who was an American um, uh, academic who was attached to the school that deals in this. Uh, he's now in Melbourne doing some work. And he actually was on record saying that he found it absolutely fascinating that if he was in America, he would have had all this information as plans on his computer because he was able to do research on it. Uh, but in Australia, in Melbourne, uh, he is barred from access to what should be uh, public information. Not not commercially in confidence at all. This is a coverall that they're using in order to ensure that people do not have information about stuff that we should have information about. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we've tried. Uh, we've had um, two delegations and one we were seeking to speak with the Premier, the other that seeking to speak to the Minister, Minister Foley, Martin Foley, and uh, both times we were fobbed off onto their um, housing advisors. We're um, still trying to... We have called for uh, a moratorium, and that was put forward by our union members at a forum that we held last September. We're yet to hear back from them on that, um, and we were wanting at least to halt, halt the redevelopments Halt um, moving people out, um, scaring them half to death. People have been in this, um, you know, sort of un insecure situation for the last year where they were told that they would be moved, there would be relocations. They don't know where to, for how long, and where they're coming back to. They have no right of return. Uh, Martin Foley continues to say and has put out a pledge that we pledge that you will return, um, but we've had lawyers go over it and it's, you know, it doesn't what, guarantee it, it, they're what, right. What is it? It's not worth the paper that it's written on. Well, that's what we're told, yes. 
but and then of course he just tries to bully us and goes, you know, well you bring your lawyers and we'll bring ours. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, isn't that a wonderful way to conduct a consultation? Um, people are out and about. The, his offices, they've relocation offices, and I presume that mo- that them, some of them would be contracted out. Are going around the estates, um, talking to people, um, you know, about what's going on. Um, the, the residents are still in a terrible quandary about half of them don't know, they're not at all um, sure whether they should be signing thing, they're being told they have to sign off on these new leases, otherwise um, if they don't sign it means they're not interested in a relocation. Um, so we're hearing all of these stories but of course to try and get proof of it is terribly difficult. We've had People, um, some of the older residents on these estates have ended up in hospital because of the stress of it. Um, people were told to pack up uh, by Christmas and then they would be told when they would be going. Um, the, the estates that I've been on, I've been on three of the nine, um, they don't know yet. Now, the other um, thing that is, I think is, is just shocking and unconscionable is that they're demolishing all of these low-rise properties that have been identified. Some of them are not dilapidated. They have, in fact, been refurbished within the last seven years. I've been in some of them. They are gorgeous. And more than that, they are double brick. (laughs) Nothing inflammable there. I was also going to say that's better than a lot of private developments uh, that you will see these days. The federal government's got a role in this as well, hasn't it? No, absolutely. The, the, the federal government has been driving it, there's no doubt about that, and it's been very clear in you know, what's called their National um, Housing and Homelessness Agreements, and there's a new one kicking in on 1 July 18, and it's very, very clear what the benchmarks are. They are encouraging the growth of community housing, right? So it's privatised as well as providing um, incentives to bring in public, uh, private sector, what they're saying, private sector investment. Well, the investment is in their own profits, basically, because all they have to do um, is provide a 10% increase in, in, so, in, in social housing, right? So it could end up being community housing rather than public housing. So, and that we can't get clear either. Um, now, say on an 1,100-dwelling um, estate, well, what's that, 110 extra additional properties um, when you've got 35,000 people currently on the Victorian waiting list and another 22,000 homeless. Well, how does that, how do these figures equate? And we've got all this land. If you go out onto some of the estates, the land is gorgeous. They were designed with the knowledge that people need a bit of space around their property, that the kids have got playgrounds, they've got sporting grounds, they've got space for a community and health and services so that they can walk to them. Um, They're close to public transport. They're close to what jobs are available. And these... (laughs) These people are just going to be moved. And, I mean, just imagine you're being told, out of your house, off you go. Oh, whoops, don't know where you're going, but never mind. Um, We'll sort that out. Uh, Give us a bit more time. 
Now, well, no, one the, of the places... It's sacri- sacrificed to the uh, a failed experiment of uh, neoliberalism, basically. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, you know, the shame of all of this is that already, you know, and particularly from overseas, but also in Australia, the result this has not worked. And all it's meant is, you know, what we're, we're looking at in time, not now, but over time, the public tenants are going to become part of the, the, uh, the new homeless because they're going to, in part of all of this redevelopment, you're going to have higher density, so you're going to go up. These were all low-rise. Um, the ones that we have found out about are either medium or high-rise, up to 12 storeys. That was what we were told at a meeting we were at over in Hawthorne to the Billings Estate there. Now, the local residents, they're absolutely opposed to it. They're in total support of the public housing residents and the local residents don't want this increased density because it means that their schools are already overflowing and overcrowded. Um, Their streets are already, you know, traffic jammed Um, and this sort of influx of people means in this very small area just means that they won't be able to cope. Now, at the moment, um, I don't, from memory, it's about, they've got about 110 units. Um, The local government were prepared to negotiate up to about 250, but the... um, Government plan is something over 500. Oh, for goodness sake. No, no, we've got to come to an end to this. Uh, There's so many things to cover in this, Lou. There Uh, is. On Friday the 2nd of March, you're you're going to do a demonstration outside Minister of Housing uh, Martin Foley's electoral office, 11 a.m. That's right. Yes, 5.46 Rouse Street, Port Melbourne. And we need you to come bring your pat pots and pans and please come. It is time for us to all stand up and say we want to keep public housing. This is our asset. We do not sell it off. Um, And also on Sunday, there's a residence action meeting. That's the 18th of February on Sunday. At 1 o'clock, the Men's Shed, Wingate Avenue, uh, the community centre at 13A Wingate Avenue, Ascot Vale. So these are two really important demonstrations for the public to come out and say, we don't want our assets sold. Once the land is gone, it's gone forever. So it's, it's unsustainable. Thanks for talking to us today, Lou. Good on you, Annie. Thank you for the opportunity. Hi, I'm Aaron Patterson, and you're listening to 3CR. A week solidarity bricky team listener when big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull celebrated the 10th anniversary of saying sorry by saying he is not sorry for ignoring decisions taken by the Terranilius non-people over what they believe will help them become non-non-people, like having a bit of a say, a bit of input into policies that affect them. Put simply, Malcolm put it simply, I know what's good for them. He showed the true leadership and strength that have epitomised his term as Big Supremo. His minister for the Terranilius Whites Know What's Good For Them non-people, Nigel, scold them. Nigel is another great mind in government, isn't he? Nigel said motions arising from the Uluru meeting last year. Correction. Sorry, Nigel, sorry, uh, what? Uh, Ears rock, ears rock meeting. Oh, okay, sure, sure. Anyway, Nigel said motions like non-people wanting a body which would advise government and a treaty with the invaders showed just how they had no idea what is good for them. 
severe desecration, bare violation of the sacred day when this great country was founded in 1788 is violent proof of their inability to run their own lives. How irresponsibly dangerous to democracy it would be to give them some say in running their lives. Uh, but, but Nigel, they were here. It had been founded. Don't be stupid. It was terra nullius. Everyone knows that. Today, move on 130 years. Not that we're suggesting a bloke like Nigel is stuck in 1788. Today in 2018 is Saturday, Saturday. And the day after tomorrow, Sunday, Sunday is Monday, Monday. Which I raise because naturally it reminds us of Malcolm's ever popular deputy and Hayseed and Sheepshead Party Supremo Brackett's temporary barnacle. Sorry, how, you ask? How? It's obvious. Monday, Monday was sung by... <laughs> yeah, you got it. The Mamas and the Papas. That's our very bad joke of the morning out of the way. Oh, and let's thank Barnacle for landing us with Matthias Rotten Tudor as acting Big Supremo. Thankfully, Malcolm has addressed the mummies and daddies' problem. He's much publicised ban of sex between ministers and their staff. Well, that's guaranteed to stop that. As passion arises in the office late at night after about 10,000 drinks, they'll look at each other, put their dishevelled clothes back on and agree, no, no, Malcolm says we can't. Although having an affair per se is certainly big news. There wouldn't be more than about 8 million true blue Aussies having an affair at any given time. Perhaps Malcolm could help the public purse a bit more by turning his attention to the real issues, certain jobs that were created. Although, let's point out, the pregnant non-partner was not a partner. The seething wife back home where Barnacle was no longer was the partner. Semantics can be a wonderful thing, but partner or not, new highly paid position, not advertised? Mm, probably worth a look. And free accommodation for the non-partners from a caring business class person who suddenly won thousands in contracts? Mm, probably worth a look. While we still can. Bringing us to the week that was End of the Earth Report. Doing its best to end the world, the recent figures on political donations show the coal lobby was the biggest political donor in the last election. Nearly four million, plus another one and a half million from the Minerals Council. But sadly, government has been forced to attack and threaten bad, bad donations like GetUp, which is trying to thwart the end of the earth, spending 820000 on that irresponsible campaign, forcing the fossil fry the planet lobbyists to have to spend seven times that amount to ensure the end of the earth rolls on. But the Minerals Fossils Council made one silly tactical error. It told journalists it donates so it can have access to government to ensure the end of the earth. Well, I added the last bit there, while other major donors explained the real reason for such generosity, like Jamie Puker's Crook Casino, the AN Zero for You Bank, the Insurance Council, said they gave to support a stable political environment, expecting nothing, absolutely nothing in return. Not saying the Mineral, Co Mineral Council's burst of honesty has any effect, other than 350.org, a climate activist group, 
according to the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, that has hijacked the Batman by-election, faces the loss of its charity status and tax perks over its overt political campaigning. Overt campaigning, something the coal lobby would never do. Probed 350.org over, helping organise blocking coal loading at the port of Newcastle. Slowing the end of the earth. Wonder if it has access to uh, government equals with the, with the lobby. While on the end of the earth, report and the Batman by-election following the tragic loss to parliamentary democracy of David Phoney, Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition has been delineating socialist policy for the by-election, including raising doubts about the policy that may not be the policy to support the Adani, the climate, fry the planet CO2 mine. Oh, and little Billy, just when did you think the pro-CO2 policy you've supported so strongly may need a, a bit of a rethink? I'd say uh, roughly, uh, let me think, uh, roughly uh, two and a half seconds after David resigned. Down in Tassie, Principal also running riot in the eponymous Jackie Lumpen network, displaying a modesty right up there with that South True Blue Aussie Nick Xenophony. Principal running after the number two on the ticket was declared eligible to replace her. Sadly, she was immediately forced to expel him after he selfishly decided that, having been elected, he would, wait for it, wait for it, consider himself elected. A blatant abuse of the so-called democratic election process. Yes, why did you throw him out, Jackie? Because he wouldn't give me the seat. How selfish and unprincipled can you get? For Christ's sake, what's the bloody party called? Uh, and what's the principle involved here, Jackie? The principle is, I'm Jackie Lumpen. And quite possibly the only member of the eponymous group. But what a pity she won't be in the Senate to discuss a bit of war and the fun, fun, fun of train killing with new caring business class senator and ex-big, big train killer Jim Morlam, who just loves a bit of train killing and who threatened a bit of same on those who insulted him by suggesting his distribution of neo-fascist racist material made him a neo-fascist racist sympathiser. Wash your mouths out, critics! One of the expert exponents of train-killing Zion, which so deplores aggression against anyone, was forced to accuse Syria of aggression after Syria shot down a very, very expensive Zion train-killer machine. We deplore this unprovoked aggression, this war crime by the Syrian government against Zion. Uh, so they came into Zion and shot down your bomber. Well, no, not exactly. Uh, so where was it when they shut it down? Well, it was over Syria, evil, aggressive Syria. Uh, and what was it doing there? Uh, well, it was just bombing them. And they shot it down just because it was bombing the proverbial out of them and killing them? Exactly. Unprovoked aggression. 
Seriously, we've got to give some sort of marks for obfuscation. No, let's go all the way. Outright hypocrisy when Zion accuses someone of aggression because it shot down one of its planes, bombing the proverbial out of them. They've obviously become so used to bullying the Palestinian non-people who lived in Zion when it was Palestine, who have no more lethal weapons than stones and words which fall on barren disinterest, stones and words, against one of the world's biggest train-killer machines, that they see the gross injustice in someone actually fighting back when they assume their Yahweh-given right to attack anyone they feel like attacking. Although we know those lethal arsenals are not the aggressor, thanks to the US of the UN of the US of the World National Guns Don't Kill Lobby, endorsed by no less reliable a source as the US of Big Supremo himself, as the 18th mass shooting in 2018 saw 17 more students going to school but not going home, killed not by a personal arsenal but by the 19-year-old who had accumulated legally as it should be as he says his constitutional right the personal arsenal and Donald Trample the poor expressed his sympathy and said children students should be safe to go to school and go home again and the obvious solution because we know guns don't kill it's people who kill is ban people before long it will go into reverse exponential and the problem will be over. The guns will run the planet like guns used to run Tasmania and their facsimiles still do. And the guns will facilitate the banning people process. Speed it up. The airline that used to be ours, Supremo Allen Joystick, explaining why, like lots of other top 100 great corporations, it had paid no tax for 10 years, a compelling reason for slashing tax on the filthy rich, said it had all these losses to absorb before paying tax on its record profits. And his salary had soared because of the record profits. Just wish the ABC interviewer had asked Alan whether his salary had been reduced because of the losses, well, the book losses, or why he too shouldn't have to absorb the losses before getting a soaring increase. Seemed the obvious question, but she didn't ask it. Finally, some things are so rare, they're front-page material. Like Monday's front-page True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review headline, Women Paid More Than Men. Yes, yes, deep investigative reporting has unearthed one case. Women engineering graduates are being offered more than their male counterparts, making it naturally front-page news. Although... Didn't women win equal pay back in 1972? I must have got that wrong. Good morning. There is power in numbers and there is power in independent, community-run media. Join the swelling number of people fighting back by becoming a member of your radical activist radio station. Show us your love and subscribe to 3CR. Call us on 9419 8377 or pay online 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe.
You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and uh, in the studio we've got Alice Quinn. Alice Quinn has just come back from Cambodia and it's in the context of the Australian government having, uh, federal government having uh, slashed our uh, foreign aid. Uh, I thought we'd have a discussion about what that means on the ground to one of the places where uh, it would be uh, be clear that uh, Western powers actually have an obligation, but what uh, cuts, sev- severe cuts to Australia's foreign aid actually means on the ground. And you've got to remember that uh, Australia's uh, aid it only constituted, before the cuts, 1% of its of our GDP. So that's a fascinating sort of uh, lack of uh, uh, ethical... Uh, responsible uh, foreign uh, investment, it would seem to me. But anyway, hello, Alice, how are you? Hi there, I'm good, thank you. Now, you went off to Cambodia, not as a tourist, but you went there because you were part of a group of people who wanted to be useful. Yep, that's true. So I went over with a a grouping called Green Lion uh, to do some volunteer work over in a town called Samarong in the Odar province of Cambodia, So what I was doing was medical outreach in the context of a hygiene project. So going around to local government schools, teaching kids about the importance of washing your hands and brushing your teeth and keeping healthy. And within that time, I was also shown through the local hospital there and shown through several different kinds of public schools. So I got a good sort of view of what was going on in that little province, as well as um, myself and the woman I went over with raised a bunch of money with help from our friends and family over in Australia to take over there. So we got to see exactly what um, taking a bit of money over does achieve. Um, it's all, all very uh, um, local and it's uh, personal and uh, committed. Now, the thing that you were doing, uh, it seemed, you know, in a funny kind of way, it sounded small, but it's not actually small. Uh, you were actually uh, uh, going around schools and showing the kids how to brush their teeth. Now, there's a story behind the toothbrushes and the other things that were given to the children, isn't there? Yeah, so it's um, there's a woman over in Europe who has set up this program for both Cambodia and Myanmar in conjunction with Green Lion um, with a written script talking about hygiene for children to start changing their lives from the ground. So going to these schools, it was very obvious that a lot of kids didn't have access to toothbrushes, toothpaste. Some of them didn't seem to have ever tried brushing their teeth before. A lot of kids had blackened teeth, and this is, you know, kids under 13. Um, So the woman from Europe and another woman that I was volunteering with uh, had actually raised a lot of money before I was She was from Finland and the... Yeah, the Netherlands and the other woman's from France. So, yeah. So that's an interesting combination yeah, of connections yeah. as well, right? So they met in Europe, and this inspired um, the woman I was volunteering with, Annika, to raise a lot of money, bringing over toothbrushes and toothpaste, which meant that we could give each child that we uh, saw these things. Whereas previously, without that um, donation, the Uh, outreach workers were just going and showing children, which obviously doesn't engage them as well, especially when you're translating everything that you're trying to say through another person. Um, And you had loads of people coming. 
because they wanted the gifts. Yeah, so every class we went to, the teachers got a donation as well. All of their children would often be there as well. Principal, everyone got, you know, soap, toothbrush, toothpaste. So it was quite a big impact. Um, Within this time, we got to see the facilities that schools had for washing their hands and things like that. A lot of schools there still don't have clean water and some schools, unfortunately, don't have any water at all. Um, some school... <laughs> That's a bit of a drawback. Yeah, it makes it really difficult to wash your hands, surprisingly. Um, a lot of the schools had taps that were donated at some point that are just for kids washing their hands. Unfortunately, the piping systems in those break a lot quicker than the actual taps, so a few of those had been broken over time. One of the specific schools that really linked to this that we saw was a school with a big a plaque saying, donated by the Australian people. And Oscare. So Oscare, when we asked about it, if they were still donating money to this school, um, our uh, translator spoke to us and said, no, not for years now. Um, their taps were actually broken and had been for some time. They also had a water pump that wasn't working, um, meaning that the school didn't have any clean water. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Now, you also observed uh, some other um, closures because of lack of funding. Yep. So while we were going through the hospital, which, as you can imagine, is quite different than the hospitals here, it's around the size of a country Australian hospital. However, all of the equipment is quite old. A lot of it's donated, a lot of it donated from America, um, which is great. But at the same time, it can lead to issues with getting uh, connections and, you know, paper and things like that for these equipments. Um, While we were walking around, we were shown two closed buildings, beautiful new buildings. One of them was donated by the Fred Hollows Foundation um, as an eye care centre. It had been open for a year and then closed for two because funding had been withdrawn. Um, The other that was there was um, a cordoned off area that was initially a children's HIV centre. However, UNICEF had given the initial money to get it built and then withdrew funding. So both of these buildings are standing closed in this rural hospital. Um, Samarong is a town that's two hours away from Siem Reap, which is the next major city. So as you can imagine... And that's right beside uh, the Angkor Wat. This is where all the tourists go to. Uh, just recently, there was a... Um, in our papers, there was a review of one of the uh, top-notch hotels in the entire world is in Siem Reap. So uh, if you want to put your dollars into tourism, that's probably where you'd go. But there are actually more important things going on in Cambodia, aren't there, for the people? Yeah, there's a lot of major issues that um, seem to not be addressed. I mean, one of them, as we were just speaking about, is to do with clean water. Uh, As a tourist there, you drink bottled water. You would not drink the local water. The people there do, but um, it's not clean, like the risk of disease is quite high. Um, The other thing that was really noticeable and very different than Australia was um, disposing rubbish is not something that they have um, dealt with. So each individual family will burn their rubbish, leading to the atmosphere being um, very smoggy and we were informed... Dangerously smoggy. Yes, and we were informed by um, some of the coordinators there that they can't actually drink some of the rainwater because of the contents of the clouds after they've been burning off all this um, mm. rubbish. Now, this is obviously a changeable thing and is related to their central government. Definitely. Um, and, you know, if we think about Australia in the past, I mean, clean water's not something that we've particularly had an issue with, but the way that we've disposed rubbish has changed over time. It's not something that's impossible to change. 
Um, it's interesting you should say that because people have um, uh, convenient memories. Uh, during the 70s in Australia, there was a litter, anti-litter campaign. And uh, previous to that, anybody who was younger before that, if you were driving around in the country, all along the sides of the roads was a huge amount of litter, uh, rubbish, and also people would uh, often uh, just think it was a normal thing to uh, stop their car at a... Uh, um, look out or something like that and toss out all their cigarettes from their but- uh, from the uh, ashtrays and uh, throw out all their uh, food wrappers and stuff like that just out on the street. Now, that was a common thing. I still see it sometimes, but it's considered to be really not the thing to do. And so it's obviously public campaigns make a huge difference. It's not because we're in Australia, in our DNA, we're born with the idea that you shouldn't litter. No, of course not, of course not. It's definitely something that can change. Um, And even within the city that we were in, in Samarong, there definitely were posters up about how they want to have a clean city. It's just not something that's achieved at the moment. Um, And without there being a way to dispose of their rubbish, that's not something they can really achieve at this point. You did see a really disturbing set of uh, posters in one of the schools. These are primary schools we're talking about. Yeah, so there were some – when I was going around the schools, I was taking photos of some of the uh, posters just to see the difference. So some schools wouldn't have any posters at all because their funding is very limited. A lot of the uh, material that goes up in the classrooms seems to be provided by teachers or um, donations. So as you're going around the classroom, some of them are very normal, you know, shapes, learning the times tables, things like that. And then you'll get the to – The food groups. Yeah, food groups, which are a bit different over there. They have snake in some of them, which is great. <laughs> um, but as you're looking around, I did see one poster that seemed to be about um, the fact that it's illegal to be sold into slavery and another poster detailing about what to do if you get HIV um, – Road rules are obviously very different in Cambodia and there were posters about um, driving in the primary schools, so learning your road rules. Um, uh, yeah, so that was quite quite different. Yeah, anti-slavery posters. You you can protest if you're being sold into sex slavery. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, something that primary school children in Cambodia might have to be alerted to. Uh, you went to a school uh, that uh, – give us an idea of uh, the school that uh, you you considered to be incredibly useful to uh, – and was and actually was given uh, uh, endorsements by some of the people that you met. Yep. So yeah, with the organisation that I had gone over there with, they also run a, a volunteering teaching program. So that's at a place called Greenway School. It's a school to teach English. Um, in Cambodia, you only go to school for three hours a day and about an hour of that is playtime. So this school would run the opposite. So if you went to the public school in the morning, you could go to Greenway School in the afternoon and you can get um, some English teaching there. And how is that funded? So that's funded through uh, donations. Donations. Yeah. Okay. So donations from – there's a lot of people coming over from Europe, some from Australia um, and from China as well, coming to teach English there and it really is about the the um, the money that you put in to go over and volunteer will be put towards that school. Yeah. And it's grown from just a couple of classrooms to two different sites across the road from each other. I think there's 16 classrooms now. There's a um, 
a man who lives on site with his family there now. They've got a computer lab. They teach adult classes at night. And the importance of learning English in Cambodia, it's still a developing country. The best way to be able to make a living is still to do with um, going into hospitality or hotel industries. In Siam Reap, you can, you know, get um, training to become a hotel employee and get paid properly Uh, but to do that you need good English skills so this school can provide that to the kids up in Samarong and it's a completely different environment than the public schools the kids are much more confident they're smiling they're wanting to interact with you it's a completely different feeling going in there's lots of color which is not something that you see at the public schools they have play equipment that's not broken they have taps um So we brought over some money, as I was saying, to donate to um, the school when we were going over and we discussed with the principal and the coordinator what kind of things would be useful to them and settled on a couple of things. One of them was getting washing hand taps to go next to the toilets on their second site and obviously we didn't know how much money that would cost but it was about uh, 400 US dollars, which if you think about it is really not a lot of money uh, to provide clean you know, a, a clean space to wash your hands after you're using the toilet. Before that, they didn't have them there. So you can imagine a lot of kids just didn't bother. Um, with our money, so we took over uh, 1200 American dollars. And with that, we bought those taps. Uh, they managed to make 15 sets of tables and chairs. And there were four security cameras placed at the entrances of the school. And that's quite important um, because, they, unfortunately, they do have children go missing. It hasn't been from the school, but from the town it happens. Um, And sometimes they're found and sometimes they're not. So this way the school can feel safe um, in the fact that they're doing everything they can to keep their kids safe. Mm, Goodness me. That's uh, quite uh, disturbing. This is at the same... While you were there, uh, the um, even though Cambodia is nominally called a democracy, the... uh, Opposition leader had just been uh, incarcerated, put in prison. Yeah, so last year the opposition um, party was dissolved and the opposition leader was placed in jail. He's still in jail at this point. Um, I think over 100 members of the party were given a five-year ban from politics. So there's obviously a lot of, a lot of issues going on in Cambodia at the second. <laughs> but but it's interesting too that uh, so much uh, of uh, the uh, push forward has happened because uh, people, wealthier people from other countries have come to visit just as tourists and funnily enough they are infected by the, uh, uh, the need and the beauty of the country and the people and have actually stayed there and created social enterprises. It is, it's a really beautiful country, or the bits I saw were, and that was the thing that struck me so much, um, both in, so in the school I was in, there was a man from Australia who's been there for three years, he came for a month, been there for three years, he's going to continue teaching until his primary school kids are out of primary school. Is that fascinating? So he's decided, he started off when they were in their young classes, and now he's going to take them all the way through. Yep. So that's his personal commitment. Yep which is pretty amazing. Um, in Siem Reap, there are lots of social enterprises like you were just speaking about. So there's one, uh, there's a woman, unfortunately, who passed away in 2009. Her name's Genevieve. She was an Australian as well. She went over to Cambodia in 
I think, the 70s to do some teaching, volunteering. And after that experience, she decided she needed to do something. And from that, she's opened a craft market for people who have been um, victims of the war. Uh, so those with disabilities created by things like mines. Yeah, um, which is interesting because you sent me a card and it's on the stamp it's actually got a army person uh, looking at, with one an instrument that's looking for unexploded ordinances. Now, this is a very important issue in Cambodia, right? It still is a huge issue. Uh, actually, in the province we were in, uh, there are still a lot of mines to be found. There are still areas you wouldn't wander around because of the war going on for so long and um, the Khmer Rouge ending up right up near the border of Thailand, um, hiding in those jungles there. There's still a lot of dangerous area up there. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that uh, person who uh, uh, um, ran that social enterprise, that still has got legs, doesn't yep. it? Doesn't so it? her husband stayed on and has continued to run the craft market as well as opening a restaurant that helped teach um, Cambodians about the hospitality industry. I actually found several different enterprises like that. There's several um, artistic enterprises that have been created by Westerners who have come over and decided there's a need. A circus? Yes. um, Flair Circus is the Cambodian circus and it was created by a group of um, French people who went over, decided there was a need for visual arts and as they were trying to teach kids visual arts, they realised they're very restless and managed to take that into acrobatics. So now they run in the um, Batambat uh, province, they run a school that teaches both visual and um, visual arts, acting, acrobatics, and uh, computerised arts as well now. So they've really branched out and uh, they now run a circus every night in Siem Reap for tourists to come and see. They also tour internationally. Yeah, they do. So they, they've become very successful. The students who have gone through there have a chance to have a career in the arts, um, which I know can be a bit um, looked down upon actually in Western countries now, but it's a really amazing way to get out of Cambodia to make some money to um, continue making money throughout your life. Well, well, it's quite fascinating, and thanks for coming in and talking to us. It, it, it's fascinating to see... Uh, where people's donations and also foreign aid, uh, how it fl- flowers. And when you go to a place of that nature, uh, how um, direct the uh, importance of uh, human connection is because, uh, you know, the taps are broken, they can't be fixed. Mm. Uh, the water needs uh, – there are you, – you were saying that uh, uh, <laughs> you you – we're saying that uh, on your visit there, you started to think to yourself, you know, why don't, uh, why, you know, there's these organising principles that you could apply to clean water and clean air. Yeah, yeah. There's, they are clearly the biggest issues when you go there. You feel the smog, you breathe it in while you're there. Um, and it's something that could be, well, could be fixed with a concerted effort and with a government input. Um, and the same, it feels like, uh, the amount of plastic there is just wild. But at the same time, if you can't have clean water from your tap, of course you're going to use bottled water. There isn't really a choice if you don't want to get sick. Um, so there's clearly things that could be targeted. It's just whether or not they will be. And you found that the Cambodian people that you met were incredibly enthusiastic about their future. Yep, yep. Um, 
so both within like very knowledgeable about what's going on for them which is amazing especially considering the state of schooling is still quite rough since the civil war there um but the man who runs Greenway School is a Cambodian. He has been very passionate about it. He was the one who pushed and made this small, you know, class a couple of classroom school branch out to this huge, huge sixteen room classroom. He still has big dreams for the place. He's planning on buying more land for more classrooms, getting more teachers involved, and this endless networking with outside people. Yep. So uh, they're hoping to get a constant flow of volunteers. Uh, volunteers often come back as well. The woman that I went over to volunteer with, this is her third time being there. There was another woman that we met who, she this was her second time and her university break, she was spent doing this because she was so passionate about teaching the kids over there. That's interesting, isn't it? There's a whole industry going on. In fact, uh, you found that... Uh by doing this, you it connected you with a, another group of people. So there's this watershed of um, administrative processes that uh, f- uh, feed volunteer people in. Yeah, I, I think people can get um, kind of lost when they're looking for volunteer programs to go through. Um, this one, luckily, I was going over with someone who had been there before. So you know that the money that you're giving them is going towards something and something you can, solid yeah you can see where it's going you can see what they're putting their work into you can see how hard they're working and you can be helpful rather than a drain exactly and it's not somewhere where you slack off if you're teaching you're doing your lesson plan the night before you're going to bed at eight o'clock these are all these um, 18 to 22 year olds getting into bed at eight because they're so tired from teaching uh, a morning and afternoon class of small kids and trying to get them to understand english words and understand you know f- um phonics and sentence structure and it really is hard work it's not it's not something just to put on your resume um it's something where you're connecting with the community Mm. thanks for coming in my pleasure hi i'm aaron pedersen and you're listening to 3cr from every corner of the world they came from all around When in 1851 they struck gold upon the ground Every voyage was a long one Months upon the stormy sea Some to seek their fortune Others escaping slavery What they found on the gold fields Was ruled by brutish thugs Discrimination and taxation Mixed with swinging billy clubs The gold was getting scarcer And cops were getting worse the diggers burn their and that's the end of Solidarity Breakfast uh, this morning. And uh, we revisited what was going on at Apple Megastore potential plan for Federation Square. We moved on to public housing. Uh, this is the week that was was on. Next week, uh, Kevin's going on his uh, annual uh lawn adventure so he won't be here next week but he will don't fret he will be back the week after and then we found out about uh, what volunteers do in Cambodia and why foreign aid dollars aren't just uh, a feel-good experience for governments or a propaganda campaign actually has real effects for people on the ground. Uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. Uh, I'll just uh, announce a couple of things. So on um, the uh, on March, on Friday, March the second, down at uh, Rouse Street, 
Martin Foley's office, there's going to be a rowdy demonstration at 11am around public housing. Uh, there's also... Oh, what's, I'll just find the um, actual address. Can I find the actual address? Yes, I have it right in my hand here. It's 46 Rouse Street, Port Melbourne, 11am. Uh, tell Minister Martin Foley that you actually have objections to wholesale selling off of uh, public assets to private developers and using uh, this as a cover for uh, uh, acting as if you've covered your responsibilities for uh, um, public housing. Tomorrow there's going to be on the same issue, Ascot Vale Estate Residence Meeting, uh, Wingate Avenue at the uh, Men's Shed. They're going to have a, a, a discussion about what's going on for them. That's 13A Wingate Avenue, Ascot Vale, Victoria. But you know where you are. This is Melbourne. Uh, as I said, coming up next is Asia-Pacific Currents. Lots of things going on in this. Uh, don't forget uh, Palm Sunday, the 25th of March, is also the big gathering in regards to uh, refugees. All right. Getting out of here, we're going to have That's Your Way Out by the uh, Pandoras.
I often feel the only thing standing between. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.